Hello, and welcome to the Talented Amateurs podcast. My name is Joe Randolph, your host, and today we have Dr. Tierney Bates, who is Assistant Vice Chancellor for Special Projects and Executive Director at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, or UNC. And if you're from Carolina or from North Carolina, it's uh, some, sometimes referred to as Carolina, unless you're in Columbia, South Carolina, and you're talking about USC. But I want to welcome him to the podcast Today, where and in his role, he's focused on providing leadership and strategic initiatives, supporting internal and external partnerships. So we'll get into that throughout the episode, but let's get started. Tierney, how are you doing today? And welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Joe, for having me. I'm doing well today. Uh, great opportunity to talk to you and really have a great conversation overall. So look forward to it. Absolutely. And I know we've known each other for a while through different circles, obviously through the Urban League, but it's been it's been a pleasure watching your growth as you've kind of moved into this academic space and just kind of seeing you um, matriculate and really create a space for yourself in this world. And now that you're in Carolina, which is near and dear to my heart, as I told you, I lived in Charlotte for 15 years. That's like second home to me. And so definitely excited to learn more about some of the great work that you're doing. So as we get started, let's maybe just start off with telling us who you are. Who is Dr. Tierney Bates? And tell us a little bit about your career and your trajectory into this higher education space. Sure, sure. So so thank you. Dr. Tierney Bates is from Cleveland, Ohio, a.k.a. 216, a.k.a. Thieveland, as I like to call it, as far as that's concerned. Born and raised there in Cleveland, Ohio, by two parents who raised three kids to go out and, and Take on the world, I like to say in some regards. So grew up in the Shaker Heights slash Cleveland area. If people listen to this, they'll know the Cleveland Shaker Heights area as far as that's concerned. But really was acting multiple things that I wanted to do, was exposed to a lot. So I call it my education experience and exposure. Went to Catholic schools, grew up in a large Italian Jewish neighborhood that was mixed. So, you know, that one point in time where everybody was integrating, but then there was still white flight going on in some regards, really was exposed a lot to a young age. My dad was an entrepreneur and owned a couple of businesses. So was able to walk into a lot of spaces based upon my education, my exposure and experience and just in general. Went to college, University of Akron, go Zips. That's where I got my undergraduate degree in mass media uh, communications, broadcast journalism, the fancy word, and then a minor in African-American history because I thought one day I might want to go back and teach at the K-12 or higher education level in Africana studies overall. I went on and got my master's in higher education administration. The reason that was is I was a very active and engaged student. When I was at the University of Akron, I was homecoming king, RA, involved with SGA, you name it, I did it overall. So it was a very exciting time. And I had a mentor come to me, Carl Crow. A uh, really good guy who's saying, you need to think about working in higher education. I had no idea was that what was going to be about that. He gave me this pamphlet to read and kind of check out. But my mindset was to go into sports broadcasting. My goal was to be the next door Scott. Obviously, that didn't happen because I'm sitting here talking to you today about higher education. But I really wanted to be on TV or at least behind the scenes doing anything around my love of sports. And so that was what I thought. But I did so much in undergrad that I didn't know this field that we call higher education existed outside of the classroom, specifically in student affairs, not just being able to be a faculty member and teach. And I like to say, hey, once I read that article and read up on the field, I was hooked. So I went and got my master's in 20, wow, 21 years later, still working in higher education and have progressed from like literally 
the entry-level role, and you guys will laugh when you think about, you know, the hall director role. That was me, person checking on people, make sure, you know, they stay in or, you know, curfew, all that other great stuff. To not being a senior-level administrator at the University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill. And I've had the ability to work in fundraising, student affairs, academic success, diversity, equity, inclusion work, and also teach. And so I have what I would call an integrated experience around working in higher education because I can understand faculty, I can understand student affairs, academic affairs, athletics, facilities, and the overarching, as I like to say, uh, macro level of how an institution actually operates and is integrated not only into the fabric of the student life, but the fabric and the viability of the community that it sits in uh, and how it drives innovation, change, culture, everything. Awesome. No, thanks for sharing that. I mean, obviously, you know, people don't under, really understand that that PhD grind and just moving into those different spaces into higher ed. And I definitely commend you because, you know, obviously you have to earn your stripes as well. You have to work your way through and, and seeing where you started and where you're coming from is awesome. Now tell us, so one of the things I wanted to ask you and maybe talk on, talking about your role as assistant vice chancellor at the university, what exactly does a vice chancellor do? And can you tell us a little bit about your role and, and what your day-to-day looks like? That is, that is not a problem. So if you look at the hierarchy, it's kind of no different from corporate. You might have a vice president uh, who, who oversees a whole division or an area uh, in some regards. And then that vice president would have an assistant vice president, which is no different in higher education. What you will have is a vice chancellor. And usually most presidents have anywhere from six, depending upon the institution, to 10, you know, vice chancellors. You have a vice chancellor for finance, student affairs, uh, your vice chancellor and provost for academic affairs, athletics, all those different roles, diversity. There's usually, like I said, between six and 10 vice chancellor roles. Well, they always have what we call a number two in some regards, and they might have multiple number twos. So as assistant vice chancellor, my role is working directly around diversity, equity, inclusion, other staff-related concerns, issues, programming, and development, and then also overseeing university career services. And so being at UNC Chapel Hill, the beauty of career services is that we can truly have an outlook on what most people want to go to college for. And that is you go to college because you're thinking by going to college, I'm going to have a better life and a better career outcome. Well, most colleges, in my personal opinion, were built for faculty. So the mindset is shifting now that we have to really have the conversation on the fabric of higher education helping with employment. Because we always thought it was there. We always said it was there, but now it has to be through data, through outcomes, different things like that. It's important. Why? Because higher education's cost has gone up and people want to know if I spend $30,000, $40,000 a year to go to get education, that I will have a career outcome and a decent wage, right? So for example, at Chapel Hill, our average student is about $56,000 a year salary. Wise graduating with a four-year bachelor's degree from UNC, and that's a mixture, right? That students in business, uh, arts and sciences majors, but that's really a good salary, fifty-six thousand. Because I've been at schools where it's forty thousand, right? And you got to think about your debt-to-income ratio, especially if you financed your higher education. Because fifty percent of majority of our college students nowadays are financing their own education, so you want to make sure that they graduate with jobs that can pay uh, their student loans back. Have affordable livable wage you know everybody wants to do like i did go buy a brand new car when you get out of college go get the fancy apartment so we want to make sure that we focus on that particularly 
as the skills change, as we're going from more of a service economy into more of an innovation technology economy for the future as well. So you've probably read about the great resignation. That is real. I know that because I'm 50% of my staff have left. You've probably heard about people saying there's jobs out here. Nobody wants them. That is true. And so what we're trying to do is marry passion, interest, and what I call internship, experiential learning opportunities into what people want to do. Like you're doing this right now, and this is a passion of yours. We want to say, how do you take this and monetize it, teach you about entrepreneurship and other different things? Because 50% of today's college graduates think about entrepreneurship versus working for somebody else as well. So in my day-to-day -day job, I am trying to help people navigate their learning environment and how to apply it onto their own career path and trajectory. Got it. No, thanks for that and, and that, that context and, and, and a little bit more there. And we'll dive into some of those elements later in the conversation. And so maybe, you know, taking a, a step deeper, what are some of those challenges? You mentioned a few, but maybe talk a little bit about some of the major challenges that you face in your current role. You know, obviously with COVID, it produced a, a lot more, but talk to us about some of the challenges that you see and how are you overcoming those? Sure. So some of our major challenges is that higher education as a whole has always been set up for in-person. So COVID threw a monkey wrench to the in-person because we talk about the experience at Carolina. We talk about the Carolina experience. Other schools have their own type of experience. If you go to a historically black college and university, they have their experience. And so colleges are set up for the in-person experience. Well, you know, we have halls, dinosaurs, college athletics, programming, all that had to go virtual. And that was a major challenge because how do you get students interested into things that are virtual when a lot of them were used to in-person and even in-person, sometimes you struggle to get students to attend events, right? So that was one. Two, knowing that we also had to make sure that we came back to a healthy campus. Everybody last year stayed remote literally for the last 20 months. And this fall, schools came back but you had to put in dashboards. You had to put in information to see who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated. You had to put in a lot of things around PPE and you know protective gear, all the other great stuff, signage. So you had to really expense. So budgets were hit, right, for most colleges because revenue driving areas within a university dried up. There were no students there. None of things were expensed. And so you either had to give students money back or you had to literally think about what some schools had to do. Furlough staff, if you were at some of the smaller private schools, you had to think about what money you were drawing from your endowment reserves overall, and then what you lost. So a major challenge for a lot of institutions around budget, what was the losses? And did you were you able to keep staff? Because the number one priority for most schools, from a challenge perspective, was to retain staff. Because we won't know that this affected everybody's life. It was important, and we didn't want to lose people. Now, another challenge on top of not trying to lose people is that People have left because what corporate America said to companies like Nike, Google, some of the bigger ones said, hey, stay home. You can work from home. And we went through this iteration a couple of months ago where everybody was coming back. And then they paused and said, you know what? We'll stay you know, remote for the next year. So if you look through LinkedIn, through other job sites, you've seen that from an American perspective, and since we're a more of an innovation technology driven economy, you don't have to sit in an actual cubicle to do your job anymore. You don't have to be in the office because everybody was on Zoom, Teams, 
WebEx, you name it, every technology underneath the sun was added on my computer, as I like to say. So now the office is no longer relevant. And that's a struggle for some, particularly in higher education, because higher education is based on the office. And so we have to uh, still get back to that experience. And I tell my team currently right now, we're coming back to normalcy in person because that's what we're known for and that's what we do. But most higher education institutions had to increase their modalities around online classes, support overall. And it's key because high school graduation rates are down across the country. And the number one population coming to college is adult learners. So adult learners don't want to sit in a classroom or don't all have to come to campus if they don't want to. And so people teased the University of Phoenix years ago, but now institutions have to add that as part of their recruitment strategy and part of their business strategy, I hate to say it, as using that language, to be able to have that adult online learning experience, particularly for bachelor's degrees, certain industries as they're growing. The number one job right now that I see for our students that are coming out is around business analytics. Everybody has become so data focused, right? So business analytics is huge, yet our students and a lot of individuals don't have the skills or have not got the certifications around that overall. So that's a major challenges and a couple of major challenges uh, that we're facing right now. And, you know, the great resonance is real. Like I said before, I have six roles to fill. So Awesome. Now, and, and you're right with, with with most companies. And I know one of the things and I have a team and one of the things I kind of pay attention to is how do we how to create more of a hybrid structure? Because. You know, one of the things I've noticed, you know, over the last two years, people realize now I do actually like the, the, the coming into the office, but there's a balance. And I maybe want to do two days in the office, three days out, or maybe three days in the office, two days out, because I think there is a certain level of collaboration that you get when you can have people and do some whiteboarding and so forth and brainstorming. But I think as employers and as leaders, we have to be flexible in helping people manage the way they like to work. And leaving it up to them and not dictating it. So I think that is key. You mentioned traditional learners, right? And and there were two things you mentioned. The the Phoenix University, you know, I remember a lot of people when you were going for jobs, like, well, if you got an online degree, people may look at it different. And then you saw that for master's degrees. And then you start to see some of the large institutions start to have online MBA programs. And then even PhD programs, there's always a stigma around people that have a PhD online. Can, are they really the same? Will they get the same level of respect from faculty who went to their traditional programs? So it's amazing how, and I'm and I'm curious about how businesses have to, how they get disrupted and have to change their model. So that's a very interesting dynamic. And now that Phoenix is kind of the head of the curve in terms of some of that learning. So that's a very unique part. But you mentioned the traditional learners, right? And talk to me more about why some of the traditional learners are now, you know, entering this space and, you know, any data or any insights regarding that? So your traditional learners, which we would call 18 and 24 year olds, what happened after the 2008 uh, great, great recession is that people didn't have enough kids. So people were like not having kids struggling through those four or five years between 2008 and 2012 to get things going in some regards. And so what you saw was, a lack of people having kids, but also you saw a demographic shift. So they've been talking for probably about eight years now that more of America will become black and brown, which is true. And so if you look at it, our Latinos now across America are, are higher percentage than even African-Americans, right? And so as you look at that, who's going to be going to college in the traditional age model is gonna be black 
in Brown because of that. So, and there's this cliff that's going to happen where depending upon the state you live in is going to be, there's not enough high school graduation rates to fill the enrollment for higher education. So across all of our education right now, you have about 20 million students. We have over 4,000 colleges. And again, higher education as a whole has been very good at getting people to come back. The shift has been a couple of different things. One, you're going to see less people having less kids. So Gen Z, which is our current college students, those born between 90 and 2012, they're not going to have as many kids as millennials, Gen Xers, and baby boomers. So you're going to see that cliff fall off there. Two, we're seeing adult learners because we're seeing those people between 25 and 54 wanting a promotion, make more money, add another skill set to their ability. So you see this drift now that, hey, I lost my job during the pandemic or, you know, this is the second time in so many years we've had some issues. I want to get solidified. So I need to have a degree or I need to have X, Y and Z in my toolkit. So that's what you're seeing there for the non-traditional students. So as a higher education, our business model has to look at how do we balance still keeping traditional students, but also bringing in uh, that. Not only that, nobody wants to sit in the classroom like they used to. Right. If I got to drive to campus, pay for a parking pass, pay all the fees, all this other great stuff where, you know, my my doctorate degree was a hybrid degree. I went to class on the weekends and did some things online. And I tell people it worked best for me and my family situation versus me having to go to class on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday nights. And I was able to complete the degree in three years. And so you see a lot more of that happening is how can I get the, the stuff I need uh, as far as learning outcomes in the shortest period of time with the most cost effectiveness. And so that is the key that's coming about overall and like I said, people laughed at University of Phoenix and other schools, but now you got to see it as part of your strategy moving forward. Because if you can tell me I can get a bachelor's degree in three years, I'm going to do that versus spending four years. Uh, if you can tell me I can do a hybrid model where you know I have some classes in person, some classes that I take online, I'm going to do that. I will never forget. I had a student when I worked at North Carolina Central University who took out of four classes, took three online and only one in person but lived on campus. And they said they wanted the on-campus experience, but they did not want to go to the classroom. So they literally took three classes online. Guess what? They still graduated on time. They still had a great degree because uh, they were uh, a business major. But those are the things that we got to think about as our society shifts in some regards. Not only that, you know, Joe, entrepreneurship is huge right now. Elon Musk, the individuals that have started their own companies, uh, that have become millionaires based upon technology, social media, all the other great stuff. Like if you'd have told me 20 years uh, ago that, hey, you should become a social media influencer, even though social media was just coming about and you could be a millionaire, I'd probably laugh at you, right? right. But now I'm saying like, man, 20 years ago, I wish I became a social media influencer because now it's part of every strategy of a university or corporation, nonprofit. I could be making top dollars being a social media influencer. So the jobs that we are seeing today didn't even exist 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that's another thing, because if we look at the future, if we forecast 15 years out, there's newer jobs being created. And so if AI, artificial intelligence, can come in and take 30 percent of jobs that are repetitive, then we have to be talking about skill sets, responsibilities, learning curves, networking, uh, all the other great stuff to be able to prepare for the jobs uh, of the future. So it's important for us to understand that. So higher education as a whole has to navigate, pivot. But you're still going to have the traditional Harvards. You're still because people think name matters. Right. Yep. I got a Harvard degree. I got a UNC Charlotte. I got a Chapel Hill degree. Honestly, it's going to be your skills. 
because General Assembly, Coursera, uh, the Googles, they're all creating their own curriculum now to teach people what they need talent-wise. Right. So as we talk about this era right now about remote work, as we talk about talent and skills, that is what they're focused on. You see that now because people are offering these, heck, we, get, we don't even have bus drivers where I'm at. And they're offering $1,000 sign-on bonuses for bus drivers, right? If you got a CDL, you can make some good money. Right. But just imagine if that's automated as we see these non-driving or driverless cars, all this other great stuff. So we have to prepare people for the future of what will happen, what will come overall. And then, you know, AI will be a big part of that as we're moving forward. And so how are we making sure our, our students, our up-and-coming babies, as I like to say, and everybody is aware of this and parents are aware of this as well as sending their students to college campuses overall. But we have to adapt. There's a great book called uh, University Innovation by Clayton Christensen. There's a lot of things that are just coming out on the adaptability of what higher education will look like, particularly our HBCUs. I think they have a unique space to carve out some things. Personally, it's just going to be about the leadership and them willing to take that plunge and, and that dive. You know, somebody like down at uh, Paul Quinn, Michael Sorrell is doing amazing things with a work college model, right? And that's how you keep the cost of students going to college and at the same time have them gainfully employed when they leave college. So there's a lot of things that we have to do, work on, and really be engaged in. And I look forward to the challenges as a leader uh, in the field. Awesome. And as you talk about some of the shifts in, in in terms of how to meet the demands of the students, particularly as you move from in-person to online, how do you how does that look in terms of curriculum as well? Because when you look at some traditional studies like going into art or you know, we look at we start looking at some of those types of degrees or going into teaching where you're starting to see a decline of people going into teaching, which would propel them or maybe want them to go into higher ed. How are you guys meeting demands in terms of just degree programs that will make sense, particularly when you talk about technology? You mentioned how kids, you know, people can make money now. Gaming is a big one. You can kids are making become a millionaire just by people watching them games. And it's a huge industry in the market. But Talk, when you talk about some of those demands, particularly with students and how you're helping to meet them, how does that look in the curriculum and degree programs that you guys are looking at or that universities should be looking at? No, no, great question. There's a couple moving parts. One, industry will dictate a lot of this. So based upon industry, our corporate partners in higher education, specifically you've got an engineering and business school and a lot of campuses, they will dictate what they need talent-wise and they will tell that to us and share with us. So when it comes to recruiting, every school wants to be recruited by the top companies uh, globally, not just nationally, but globally. And so if they're telling us certain things like this is what we need talent-wise, we have to listen and we have to prepare the students for it. That's one. Two, our faculty need to get on board. Faculty struggle with the ideation a lot of times that higher education should be about employment at the end of the day. But it has to be. It has to be specifically if you take a student like myself who goes out and you know takes out student loans, thinking this will make me you know a better life for myself, and then we got to struggle because I'm not in a upright position or job to actually make my payments. Right? I'm not saying that now. I'm just using that as an example. But it's important to understand, particularly for our students of color on our colleges campuses, whether PWI or HBCU, it is a social justice act of being able to address gaps for those students and walking into high paying, high waging gaps. And so faculty have to be friends, that have to be partners and share governance with us of determining what they're learning in the classroom is applicable 
to career outcomes as well. So that's another part of it right then and there with the faculty base. And last but not least, when we think about it overall and we're thinking about it, what students are demanding, you're right, gaming. Who would ever thought gaming would become a top industry? Well, I'm in the RTP area. We have Epic Games and another organization here in this area that is big on gaming. If you look at Syracuse, Syracuse has an amazing Syracuse University game room where students can take classes, coursework. We just opened one up at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. So you have to prepare for what, one, the demand from the students want to do. And then two, what the demand of industry is. And if we don't, we become dinosaurs. If we don't, then the degrees and the offerings we're having, we're going to be behind. I said two years ago to my team, I said, we need to be in the space around cybersecurity. People laughed at me. Now, everybody's talking about cybersecurity. Everybody's like, there's so many jobs open in cybersecurity right now. People have had data breaches, all this other stuff. And so where the community colleges come along and say, yep, we'll we'll get you the the talent you need to those companies. We can get you in through a certification or two quick two-year associate's degree. But we in in the four-year institutions have not thought about, oh, wait. Now, some of the HBCUs have, but the PWIs have not really jumped on it as far as I'm concerned. Another thing is around data science. We have to create, specifically, this is what I plug for HBCUs, schools of data science. Why? Everybody wants to hire. I said that same thing two years ago. I said, we got to focus on data science. We need to be offering that every student takes some kind of data science class before they leave the institution or some kind of entrepreneurship class. If it was me, you would take an entrepreneurship class and a data science class on top of being mandatory for you. And then you would also have to do an internship before you graduate. I would want to use like the Northeastern model where all their students have to do a co-op or internship. So imagine if you had to do a data science class and then you had to take on an entrepreneurship class and then you had to go out and actually do an internship. It will make our students in higher education so much more marketable. It will let them find and walk into the passions of the jobs they want. Because 73 percent of students, Joe, and you might talk about your own experience, don't go into their intended major upon graduation. And I laugh because that is so true. I told you before, broadcast journalism major. What am I doing right now? Not broadcast journalism. So that's the thing that we have to think about. If 73% of college students don't go into their intended major, what are the skills? What are the things we need to prepare them for postgraduate planning overall? And it's important to us moving forward. So those are a bit different things I think that we need to be able to address from a curriculum side of the house, uh, from a higher education perspective. And in the institutions that get this right will be the institutions that thrive through pandemics, through being flexible and nimble, all the other great stuff overall, and still be relevant. Why, Joe? Because you will see some schools close. Yeah. Literally, the pandemic has exposed a lot of schools, and some small private schools and other institutions will either be merged or closed because of that overall. And it's, it just comes down to business models and sense of you know the dollars or how they're being spent uh, in higher education, and, and that's a whole other conversation because we need more of the government governments to fund higher education like Tennessee does. They do, I think, a great job of funding uh, their higher education systems. And that is great because now you can see the job market there strong going forward. Overall, you know, Ford is building a $500 billion factory for cars of the future. They're like, that's the infrastructure because you want more good jobs, good opportunities to exist in your state. So by investing in higher education, it's a draw. It's the reason why Amazon decided to go to Northern Virginia. All those schools in that area and all the talent will be there. And we were in play here in, in Carolina, but you know, we got a little something from it, but we didn't get the main Amazon 2 hub. So 
it's those kind of things that we all have to come together. And what people don't realize, higher, higher education institutions are also economic drivers, not only for talent, but for spinoff startups and support a community. I mean, there's what 5,000 people work at Chapel Hill. You know what I'm saying? But we're right down the street from Central and Duke, NC State. So if you take away those schools, you're literally talking about maybe 30 to 50,000 people and suppliers of those institutions out of jobs. Absolutely. That's a great point. And thank you for sharing that. I think that has a lot of just awareness of just kind of all the different dynamics and and demands that a university has to, to maneuver around. And if they're not forward thinking about them, then they could be obsolete or they could struggle or, or struggle to remain competitive. And, you know, you mentioned some of the internships, I, you know, I, you know, managing and running some of the, re- the recruiting efforts here at the site. One of the things I tried to focus on was students that had internships or co-ops. And so those universities that we targeted had those programs in place. And I see a difference in the student that's had the internship that's coming in and they, they are able to hit the ground a lot faster and, and they have focus coming in because they've already been in the corporate environment and it doesn't feel as fast to them. There's still that natural learning curve and adjustment from college. But, you know, one of the things I, I did want to ask you in regards to that, as we think about students and particularly students of color, black students, particularly, you know, how do we ensure that they are taking advantage of some of these services on campus, particularly career services? I've been telling my nephews, a freshman at Lenore Ryan there in North Carolina is, you know, you know, you need to learn who your career services office is your freshman year because of internships. When I go and recruit at some of these places, I don't see a lot of, you know, black students or, you know, in, in those sessions. And you're talking about a tech company that could probably give them a great opportunity if they get an internship and potentially a, a higher coming out of college. How, how can we better support and reinforce kind of the importance, particularly for our students of color and particularly black students? as they're to be able to take advantage of some of these services and understanding the importance of internships and co-ops and how it sets them up for the future and helps them develop some of these skill sets that you mentioned where they can get that own demand experience prior to graduation. Well, Joe, a couple of different things come to mind first and foremost. I would say that most PWIs, we do a horrible job of supporting our students' colors when it comes to career development. We just don't connect with them. One, a lot of the career development offices don't have people of color in them. So there's a struggle, first of all. Second of all, there's no outreach to work with some of the student organizations, the fraternities, the sororities, you know, the BSAs, all the other great stuff. And how do you support them? Like we actually pay and support uh, where students can work our fairs and that helps their organization. And we try to target those, those students of color overall. It is a social justice issue because if, like I said before, the data shows the majority of our students in the future will be black and brown for us to be able to address those populations as a whole. And but we got to start freshman year. A lot of our students, though, the second thing I want to point out is a lot of students of color come to school majoring in majors that they don't know what they want to do. Psychology, sociology, peace and social justice. I know this because I talk to my students all the time. They want to go to law school. They think they want to go in the medical field or STEM. They think but they're still doing what people have told him. You know, if you go get a law degree or a doctor degree or a medical degree, you're gonna make a lot of money, you'll be fine. That's not really what they're passionate about. That's just what they told, and so they go about that. So the second thing is most schools need to adopt for students of color. I know this because we created the class here at UNC Chapel Hill, a class just for students of color to take around career and professional development. My only problem at UNC is how do I scale it? How do I get more than just 20 students taking it 
when I got 1,600 black students, right? I need right. all of them at some point in time to either take this class or how do we create what I call content delivery where all these students can go certain steps and get certified of saying, I took this coursework around career development overall. So we do a disservice because now, based upon what happened with George Floyd, over the last year, every major company, probably even yours, wants to come out and hire black and brown talent. But they have no one strategy. The only strategy I saw where a lot of people was like, run to the HBCUs. And the HBCUs are looking at us like, y'all didn't, you know, it's like Mike Jones, now I'm hot, now y'all want me. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you just can't go to the HBCUs in some regards. You have to build those relationships because I don't want you to go there and just snatch your people up. I want you to pour time, talent, and money into the HBCUs. I want you to do the same thing at the PWIs that have a large amount of, of black and brown students as well because we have a lot of minority serving institutions. They're still predominantly white, but if you got over 40% um, or 35% of your, your student body, you're considered almost a minority serving institution. Uh, UNC Greensboro is 51% students of color. So it is definitely an MSI. So you need to pour resources into those students because that's where you're going to get a lot of your talent. The problem is, Joe, I don't also want my students to walk into corporate trauma. And I'm writing an article and chapter on this right now because you can be the best organization in the world. I work with a lot of them and, and consulting wise, and they think they're doing no harm, but they actually have harm in their organization because everything is rooted in inequality regimes. And Acker talks about this from her studies and so a couple other people. Inequality regimes have existed since the founding of this country, and it's all rooted in whiteness. So you can be the best company in the world saying we're about diversity, but it's still rooted in white Eurocentric ideation. You know, if companies are not supporting the Crown Act, if companies are not supporting the way people show up as their authentic selves, you have to fit this certain culture, then you're already leaving people out. And so our students are who show up, particularly black students, and a lot of them are first generation and they're learning as they go. So it's our job, our duty as administrators, whether you're black, white, purple, green at a university, particularly PWIs, to prepare them. Now, if I haven't worked at HBCU, we do a great job of that. Oh. But the PWIs don't because one, they don't have enough black and brown faculty staff. Two, our white colleagues have to step up and go beyond being an ally, but actually have action oriented interactions with our students of color as well. And it's important to understand that if we truly want to invest in these communities, you have to invest in these communities overall. I keep saying I want to make UNC the number one place in the country for black talent. I can easily say that right now. Is that true? No. But I can say that as a vision, as a place that I want to get to, because I know my numbers of black students. I know how talented my black students are, and I know that we have over close to 500 employers that come and recruit my campus. So if that's the case, I'm going to make sure, based upon the data points that I've seen around our black and brown students, that I emphasize to our employers who are saying they want diversity, that they bring along uh, my black and brown students, interview them, get them involved in internships, spiritual learning, all that other great stuff, where I can go back and say, out of every black student that graduates from UNC, they leave with a career outcome of either a job or going to graduate school. No other school can say that right now. And so I want to be able to say that. And that's bigger thinking, but that's where institutions, predominantly white institutions, need to be at overall. They'll talk about graduation rates. That's great. We want that too. But I want you to graduate and then say, hey, I got a $75,000 job with Joe. You know what I'm saying? As far as that's concerned. Because that is the key as well is a job that is paying a livable wage, not just a job. So it's important for us to understand. Another thing is we got to talk to the parents. So we got to use our parents' associations on college campuses to do more outreach towards our black and brown parents 
as well. We need to host events for our parents. I just went through an interview process where I told them, I like, you need to host events for parents. The financial literacy parents need to have on cost of education, the continuing cost of education overall, how to support their son or daughter when they go to school. All that great stuff is important. So parents will play a big role in that as well. And we need to educate them. And again, we got to start freshman year. Can't wait to junior year. Can't wait to senior year. We got to get ingrained in them freshman and sophomore year yeah. where they already are thinking what's next. Because what happens is most of the time, spring semester junior year or fall semester of your senior year was the light bulb goes off and say, I need either need an internship or oh, wow, I'm about to graduate. I need a job. Yep. And, and I still like, I want them to go on a job because I can get you a job. I, McDonald's right. is hiring $17 an hour down here. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I can get you a job or do you want a career? And so we want to develop them around career. And I think most schools, and you can look this up, Joe, it's called a book called Design Your Life by Burnett and Evans. It's called Design Your Life by Burnett and Evans. It's a life design model. It goes off the, the ideation of design think. Use life design for our students of color. And that's what I did with the class we taught this year for our students of color. I use life design for them to think about that. It is probably the best course that any student will take at a university if a university offers it and then integrates it into the academic and also all four years. But it's also the best course for our black students as well right. because they will then start to put things together. I had a student took my class and said, I want to work with mental health. I want to do fundraising because I do that on campus for annual giving. And I want to work with black people. I said, well, there's jobs out there. She was like, really? I was like, yeah, you can work for a nonprofit organization around fundraising for those who are dealing with students of color or people of color around mental health. She never put all that together. But yeah. taking my class, using that book, she was able to put that together. And now she's working in that. She's working in that industry. And she could probably go and intern at the Urban League there. And oh man, the uh, area there too. If, if if I can do anything, having wow, man, I've been involved with Urban League since 2005. Um, Urban League needs to do, help us get more internships, not only within the, the corporations they work with, but themselves. Because right. so many students have an interest in nonprofit, and I think the Urban League will be so much better. Like if they could fund three or four graduates, like in you know Central Carolina. It would be really good for them. So. Yep. And they can help with the research yep. and the data science. Yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of students, what they don't realize or what they may not understand is when they need to be engaged in those internships. Most of the times, you know, we're hiring interns for the summer now. And so they have to be they have to know when those cycles come. And you're only going to know that if you're not in, if you're engaged with with career services. One of the things that, and I, that I want to touch on before we transition from the students and the demands is how do we also coach them to be open to mobility? And, you know, I think a lot of students sometimes, particularly students of color, they get caught up in, well, I don't know if I want to move to X city. It's hard for me to recruit students of color, black students to Reno, right? But one of the things I've had to that I try to sell them on is how do you start to build your career early and know that we can't always go to Atlanta, DC, you know, Charlotte, we may have to go to an unsexy place, but in some cases probably better for us because we can maybe be in a smaller site where there's maybe a regional location where we can learn and grow. And then that, cause that first three years will help set the tone for how, the rest of your career in some cases could go because you're built, you're developing those skills. You probably have more access 
because if you came in as a through an internship program and they may have hired you from that, you're going to have more resources early on to develop, to grow. So that first two years, they're going to be really focused and investing in you. But sometimes, you know, if the offer or the role may not be in a place where it doesn't seem sexy. They may not have tall buildings and they may have to adjust to the culture because it may not be people that look like them. How do we coach students around that? And just the whole concept of mobility, because I think students feel like when they get out of school, when they move somewhere, that's, they're going to be there for 30 years. I'm like, give me three years. And then you can figure out where you want to go next. And even also the international space and be thinking about not just domestic, but international and do a stand overseas. So that way you can continue to increase your cultural awareness as well. So how do we coach students around just that thinking and the dynamics of mobility and where they're, where they're located? Joe, great question. First, I tell them, grow where they're planted. Second thing I say, become a big fish in a small pond. Third thing I, I tell them a lot of times is, you can go to Atlanta, but if I lived in Reno, if I lived in, you know what I'm saying? I'll give you a prime example, South Dakota, all that other great stuff. They're going to pay me more. Cost of living is going to be lower. And I can stack my chips. So I can take a flight to Atlanta and have some fun, come right back to work, right? And I get it specifically for women of color because that's a hard one because most women of color feel like they have to sacrifice. Men of color, we pretty much have to go anywhere in some regard. But women of color is a struggle because you're talking about hair, dating, all that other great stuff. But I tell people it's a short-term, you know what I'm saying, thing for a long-term game. Um, yes. A prime example, I didn't know nothing about Bowling Green, Ohio, or Knoxville, Tennessee, when I went to work at those schools. Yet, I got that whole ideation of big fish in a small pond when I worked at the University of Tennessee. Knoxville's not a big city, maybe 250,000, 300,000 people total, but it's spread out. Country city in some regards, medium-sized city. Yet, I realized I was able to do so much more there not only at the university, but in the community as well, that it helped get me where I am. It's where I first really got heavily involved with the Urban League, all the other great stuff. So again, how, you know, I started the young professionals there. So how do you get somewhere where you can leave a legacy and get on the elevator going up? Because yep. if you do good in most companies, um, I'll give you a prime example. My wife's uh, best friend works for 3M. They've moved her around. She's been to South Dakota. She's been to... All these places that people would like you just said don't want to go. Yep. Now they're putting her in Indianapolis. And I know Indianapolis got culture, right? But she's increased salary, promotions each time. I wouldn't doubt next 15 years she's running a company or a top level VP or, right. or something like that. People want that, but they're not willing to sacrifice it to get that, right? We live in an instant gratification. I want my oatmeal right now, yep. that type of thing. And so, you know, I get it. The creative class, young professionals want to be in places like Nashville, Atlanta, Austin, Houston, all those other places, but go somewhere else where you get that experience and then your talent is seen. And then you can go to a Houston, you can go to Austin and Nashville. So I try to tell people, I mean, I ended up where I'm at now because I went to Bowling Green. I went to Knoxville. Absolutely. You know what I'm I ended up taking a job in Louisville and then coming down where I'm at right now. I've lived in six places over the course of my career, but each time I've made more money. I've moved up job responsibility and title each time. And so, you know, you got to be willing to make that sacrifice. Again, I know it's different for men than it is for women, but yep. those who are willing to make the sacrifice, I would tell them most of the time within 10 to 12 years, they'll be exactly where they want to be. Specifically, they come right out of college working for a company at 22, 23 years old. By the time they're 32, 33, they'll be set up so yep. well 
uh, to be able to go to Atlanta and go to places because now nah, Atlanta ain't cheap to live in. You know what I'm saying? Because all these places people want to go live in are not also cheap to live in. That's true. And people always say they want to make their money. And I'm like, well, if I can go pay living, you know, Knoxville, not pay state income tax and make $152,000 a year, I, I take that for a little bit of time. I yeah. take that for four or five years. So you just got to get it because they're not also exposed. That's like, true. They're not exposed to Knoxville. These locations sometimes don't have all the most cultural stuff to attract talent. So we got to have real conversations. And one thing is, we need to talk to companies about mentorship. So when you hire a person of color, making sure we're getting them aligned with somebody within a company mentorship-wise and making sure they're good. But again, the remote spaces open up that opportunity. You know, yeah. I've got colleagues now that working in certain parts of higher ed and in certain fields, they're working remote. So yeah. they're living in New York. They're living in the places you mentioned, Atlanta, uh, but their company might be based in another place or their institution might even be placed somewhere else. But it's going to be an ever flow around that. But I would say take the dive, take the chance uh and definitely take the the responsibility because what you want to gain is responsibility and leadership yep and that's the beauty of the internship it may allow you to work company for three months to get a feel for the area and then you can make a better decision on if this is the place you be and to your friends to with the example with your friend it also gets you acclimated to learning how to move then once you move one or two times you realize okay three years here four years there I can move around, but then it helps me build skills, helps me build a network in different areas. And it also sets me up so that the more skill and the more competency and the more that I have in my toolkit, 10 years from now, I can live wherever I want because I command it. I can make that because I have the skills, knowledge and competencies that I can demand that I got a choice where I want to live. So I think it's just how do we just need to make sure we coach students around that. So, so thanks for sharing that. I did have a question just kind of maybe, I know we're coming up on the hour it, with faculty. How do we also ensure that we continue to help faculty adjust or administrators, particularly with the shifting needs of not just all you know students of color, but all students, because we're now getting into, as you mentioned, the online digital format, but with digital transformation is coming. And we have to be able to make that adjustment. So how do we prepare faculty to be able to deal with all these different nuances? Well, sometimes they have to juggle a lot of different parts that sometimes we don't necessarily see or understand. Joe, you know, you said digital transformation is coming. It's not coming. It's here. Yeah, Um, If you think about digital, uh, if you think about everything that we're doing, even this process right here, it is here. So what you have is for the first time ever in history, five generations in the workforce from silent baby boomer gen x millennials and gen z and there's different styles because most of the time the work environment is based upon generation so you got the folks who come in every morning i never forget i did a presentation to the north carolina department of administration who got to have a coffee got to go around talk to everybody before they get to work then you got the gen z and the millennials they coming in like i ain't gotta even be in the office i can just take my laptop and do everything y'all want me to do and be done with it and i literally have told that to the people i've consulted with that a young woman is like, yeah, you know, they sit up in a meeting for like two or three hours and I've already done all the work they talked about. That's why you as a leader have to be flexible. If we talk to our faculty, you have to be nimble and flexible on what is happening around you as things change. We know higher education is changing. Students learning uh, is changing overall. Technology is changing the way we offer and do certain things. So I don't want to be a dinosaur. I want to be relevant 20 years from now, even though I've been in the field 21 years. I still want to be relevant 20 years from now where I can still speak to the changes, the impact, and how it's adapting overall. And so from a faculty side of the house, we just got to get faculty, you know, because a lot of faculty are focused on teaching and research, right? Because they want to get tenure, they want to get a life, a job for life, right? As I like to say. 
because once you get that tenure track, you're pretty good. Yeah. Um, but we got to also uh, have them understand is that the students they're going to be teaching are not the students from 20 years ago, 30 years ago in some regards. And they can run circle rounds. I got students right now that from a technology standpoint, my even daughter, you know, six-year-old daughter can get on here, probably have a better conversation with you than I could using all this great technology. So we have to understand that tier is not going anywhere. How do we adapt and how do we make sure we stay on top of it as faculty and as staff in higher education? Because again, automation will happen. And so we got to think about, and again, it's business. It is nothing personal. And people might hate when I say that, but we have gotten out of the true personal side of higher education and become more of a business model. And I love the old school model, personal development, everything like that. But people are yeah. questioning over the last couple of years of what is the degree worth, particularly when, like you said, digital showed up and say, hey, we can offer you these skills to do X, Y, and Z, because these are the jobs that are out here that will pay you 80, 90, $100,000. And people have said, everybody wants to make money, Joe. Everybody doesn't want to, you know, sit around and just make 40 grand a year. They want to make money to have a quality of life. And so right. it's important for us. Even faculty members want to be able to make some money, teach and research wise for quality of life. So it's important for us to make sure that we're at the forefront and the cutting edge of the digital transformation that is taking place right now. Not here, not coming, but it's here right now. And it's sure. a matter of we know that it's here right now because of the pandemic. It's here is not going away. It's how we adapt, how we be nimble around it, flexible and really engage our students and engage our faculty overall. Uh, with it moving forward. But I think it's going to be an exciting time for innovation because that's what we're in. We're in an innovation economy. Things more and more, this is why venture capitalism has become so big. Right. It's so big where people have big ideas. I love watching Shark Tank. I don't know about you. Like people got some of the best ideas and all they need is just that one opportunity, that one funding, and it could take off. One of the coolest things I learned during the pandemic was this company called Eat Engage. It's Eat with the letter N, Gage. They will literally have, you can have a virtual meeting like we're having right now and can deliver lunch to everybody. So you know how we used to have a lunch meeting? We still have a lunch meeting. The difference is Eat Engage will make sure that Panera Bread or whatever that local business is, make sure that food is delivered to you at your house or per place of business, whatever the meeting is going on. And I think it's really cool. And that is a startup business that started here uh, in North Carolina prior to the pandemic and really has taken off overall. So you know, it's just those kind of technologies, those kind of things that are taking off that we got to be adaptable to. Think about it. And what no was the name? Sitting down in restaurants anymore. Yeah. Eat, well, eat, eat, engage. Okay. You All can right. Google it. Eat, engage. Okay. And think about it. Nobody's going to. People were excited to see restaurants open back up, but think how Uber Eats, DoorDash took off. It got to a point for I know me and my family, we were we just pick up Uber Eats and just order. Like yeah. it was nothing. Paid a little four or five dollar delivery fee, right? And, ke- and kept it moving. And Instacart lived like that for a period of time. Yeah, Instacart <laughs> is the other one as well, right? And I'm yeah, like, I don't have, we don't have to stop in the grocery go. store. Instacart. Yeah. yeah, I mean, think about. I, I was in the grocery store this morning. I know they were doing Instacart, and I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, my wife is like, oh, I can go online and order all the groceries. You just go pick it up. Because I remember I had to go to Walmart and uh, Target twice. Uh, during the pandemic. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I ain't got to spend time. Now, for me, I still like to go in the store. Right. I'm just a little old school in that regard where I kind of walk up. It's my peace time, as I like to say. Okay. Anyway, I ain't rushing. And, you know, sometimes you still want to just touch and feel and see, but technology is here. That's true. Do you think with PhD programs today, are they, have they made the adjustment to prepare faculty for the new world or do the curriculum for PhD programs are they have they made the shift in terms of preparing faculty as well? 
So most PhD programs are still traditional preparation for faculty, for those who want to go into faculty. I knew when I got my doctor's degree that I wanted to dabble in the faculty, meaning understand the language, be able to teach, be able to publish, be able to do research. I knew I wasn't going to be a tenure track faculty member in summer, but most PhDs nowadays are still traditional building out the faculty ranks. But as you can see through articles, through Forbes, there's still a struggle. There was one this, this morning I was reading about what PhD to get, right? Because if you get a PhD, as I tell people, you got to know why you're getting it. I knew why I was getting mine. Um, because most people will tell you the law degree, the MBA, those are the top professional degrees in the corporate side of the house. You don't need a PhD to go into corporate. Right. So usually you need it in an academic setting and you're going to be in the classroom. You're going to be teaching and doing research overall. So I tell people, don't get a PhD to think it's cool just to have the three letters behind your name. Know why you're getting it because you don't want to go through that struggle where your hair is falling out, trying to defend a dissertation and do all this research, all this other great stuff. Know why you're getting it. But the, the programs are ch changing because you're seeing a more hybrid. Because adults are working. I don't have time to just do and quit my job at 35 years old, knowing I got a, you know, a child and a wife to be able to go and sit in the classroom every day. You know what I'm saying? Some do. That's why most PhD candidates you still see are still traditionally young. Like, hey, I'm 27, 28. They haven't quite hit 30 yet, as I like right. to say. Yeah. Uh, so they still are experiencing life. But I, I think there needs to be three parts for PhDs. One, we have to start seeing where they're going trajectory-wise, where they can use not only their skill set within higher education, but outside of higher education. Two, we have to make sure that we create more of a hybrid model around PhD programs because there are people who want to get these degrees, who want to do some work, uh, but not necessarily want to be on the faculty side of the house. They right. might want to be able to teach a class, be fixed term or a lecturer, different things like that, but have other interests. This is just one of their interests uh, overall. And I think the third thing is that now, if you pay attention to higher education as a whole, a lot of institutions have lost tenure track positions and you've got more lecturers and fixed term individuals. That's why I mentioned they have doctorate degrees in some regards. They would love to go on and probably get a tenure track role. But again, that tenure track role, it all depends on the discipline. If you're in business school, engineering, say journalism, those are going to be hard roles because those that come out with those degrees, they're hot commodities. Right. right? But if you're in the arts and sciences areas, arts and sciences have slimmed down more and more. Less students are majoring in some of those areas in some regards. And so it's like watching the chair. I don't know if you got a chance to watch that on Netflix. But if you watch the chair, they were talking about the three people that need to cut their salary because they, they weren't teaching about six people in one class. You know what I'm saying? Seven people in another class. Yet they're the highest paid faculty. And that's due to just long term teaching, and everything like that. Right. Uh, if you get a chance, check out the chair. It's, it's hilarious to watch. But that is where the business of higher education has started to come back to of saying, wait. Got a faculty member making two hundred thousand dollars a year, and they teach three students. Right. <laughs> Hopefully, that faculty member is bringing in two, three, four, five million dollars worth of research dollars that you know what I'm saying now offset some. But again, what is their research on? Uh, all the other great stuff. And I'm not knocking any faculty member, any research or anything like that. I just know being on the administrative side is I'm paying attention. Faculty are the key to our institutions as a whole. We just got to bring them along to understand how the outcomes for our students are important. And then also those who are getting PhDs, making sure that they have jobs when they come out in some regards, because, you know, I, I got a good buddy that I talked to. He got laid off during the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, he got laid off because he was a faculty member. 
Um, they had their furlough and they just, he wasn't tenured. So he was on a tenure track, but he, they, they had to let go. So now he's working at EdTech. And so it's those kind of things that we got to think through, work through, support our PhDs across the board. Because schools, like I said, they're going to close, you're going to shrink, merge, all the other great stuff. But we still need talent also in our field. Right. And from a business model, I know this trend was a few years ago where if you were for most non, particularly mostly non-research based universities, they were leaning more on adjunct faculty versus tenure track faculty to one, because one, if they're on tenure track, they're going to, you can't, once they get tenure, it's hard to really do anything with those folks, but at least with adjunct, and I'm curious to see, is this still a trend, at least with adjunct, you know, you may not necessarily have to pay them less, but the benefits you get is people that's probably worked in the industry. I know at least when I was doing adjunct work in North Carolina, I had a, the business and I had the street smart, so I could apply the curriculum with my career, whether it's leadership, whether it was organizational development, I could give them real life examples. And I'm curious, do universities still see that as an opportunity where they can leverage adjunct faculty much more? And then the PhDs that they do have as tenure, they can focus more on those research and bringing those dollars in. So what, what, how, have you seen the, that business model continue to shift or is it has it started to dwindle down? Like, Talk to us about some of those challenges because I'm curious to see if that trend is still existing. So it still does exist. And one of the biggest things, if you come from industry uh, and you're able to teach and apply practice to theory, I think it's very important, right? So you bring 20, 30 years of experience to an institution and to the students based upon your knowledge and connections, right? And so I think that's very important. To give you a prime example, you can make a decent money teaching as an adjunct at some schools. I, you know, I, I've taught adjunct at a school that's paid me three thousand dollars for a three hour, you know, three credit hour course. Yeah. I've taught at a school that pays you ten thousand dollars to teach an adjunct class, right? So it all depends on the major, the interest. So if you're teaching like arts and sciences, I'll give you a prime example. If you're doing biology, chemistry, any of those things. There are not a lot of people coming out getting degrees in. You're always going to be in demand. Business school, if you went in industry and worked and you can come back and teach, always in demand, right? Same thing with engineering, all the other great stuff. And adjunct is always part of the equation. We know we can't find a full tenure track person who can focus on this. Because another thing is, if you're a full, fully tenured or on your tenure track, you're not teaching like a large course though. You're doing either 3-3, three, 2-3, three, two, three, two, two, whatever it may be in some regards, because you're also doing your research, especially right. if you're on the tenure track. So you got to fill people in in certain areas. And so you see a lot of folks who will teach adjunct, who they'll pay, like I said, $3,000 or $10,000. They come in and teach that class every year. I got a good buddy who teaches back in Kentucky. I think he tells me for, he teaches for four weeks of class and gets 10 grand for I was like, sign me up. <laughs> I could teach for four weeks. I forget what this, the subject matter is overall, but you're going to see a lot of the adjuncts still mixed in. You have a lot of people who want to teach. You know, you know, I, I get people who hit me up all the time. Like, hey, this is my expertise. This is my area. I want to teach at a college. Well, I always tell people two things you can do. Really, you can get in at the community college quickly because they're looking for people to come straight from industry. And you don't have to have the doctorate or the tenure track, even though there's tenure track uh, at the community college in some regards. But they like that people coming from industry. In our field of uh, the four-year institutions, there's still what I like to say, the bougie-ness who teaches, how we teach, and all the other great stuff. And, and, you know, faculty are the gatekeepers of who other faculty members will be when it comes to the hiring process, uh, unless it's an adjunct role. And even at the adjunct role, you got to be approved uh, by the department chair, all the other great stuff as well. So it's still there. It's not going anywhere. anywhere but if you need a certain thing uh, or expertise, you, you got to pay for it. So institutions will have to do that. 
Absolutely. Okay. Very good. Well, I know uh, coming up on the end. So any special projects or initiatives you're working on in next year and in, in the future coming? I can't believe we're at the end of the year. So what do you have coming up? Any projects or any initiatives that you can share? Sure. One is trying to work on People Grove. People Grow is a new uh, online form- platform that connects alums with current students. Love it. My institution where I went to University of Akron just added it. It's called UA Gate. And I'm one of the people that's in the pilot program there. I've known about People Grow for some time, but I'm trying to get the university to move faster on it and implement it here. So that's one project right there. I think it'll do amazing things for our students and amazing things for our alum because all alum want to get back with their time, talent, and treasure overall. They're either not asked or we're not creating the right platform for them to be involved. So I'm happy that Akron is doing that and I'm piloting it working with that before I can give back some of my expertise as well. Uh, a second thing is more around diversity, equity, inclusion. I am very much focused on making sure we level the playing field around our hiring practices. So I sit on a lot of committees and do a lot of, I'm leading a couple of searches, all that stuff, of making sure that we're intentional on making sure that our hiring practices and our talent pool is diverse. I think it's important for us because what I see a lot of times in higher education is that based upon who's leading the search, based upon what's going on in search, what bubbles the top is typical white male, right? And you don't have to be a white male that does everything well. You can just be a white male that has something on your resume and you're getting interviewed. So we've got to be intentional on giving people of color and women spaces to be able to thrive and show their talent as well. And third, like I said, I'm on a mission to make Black talent a number one choice here at UNC. I want to make sure that career life design models are woven into the curriculum overall. Uh, I want to teach, again, the uh, level of playing field or the foundations for professional success class geared towards our, our black and brown students and how do we scale that where I get more students. So I'm working on projects about scalability and impact. Can we scale some of these programs up? Can we have a greater impact with people grow, a greater impact teaching these courses overall, greater impact on life design for student outcomes around career development as far as that's concerned? And then are we leading with a conscience of inclusion overall when everything we do, when we make decisions moving forward? Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I love all three of those. I think there, there are some really impactful initiatives, so I'm definitely looking forward to you getting those launched and kicked off. So so thanks for sharing those. Before we wrap up, I usually like to leave three things before we go. So if if the audience didn't take anything from this conversation, what would be three things you would want them to take away before we wrap up? One, higher education is evolving just like everyone else in America and across the globe. The pandemic exposed our weaknesses, our inequities. So we're all in this storming, norming and innovation stage right now. The higher education we know of is today would be different five years and 10 years down the road based upon the demand, based upon the, the, the workforce environment, all the other great stuff. Two, we need to prepare our current students and our coming young people to think about life as a design model, design your life, meaning reading that book, Design Your Life, applying the tools and the competencies around design, think. Two, that way you're not pigeonholed or think that you have to do just one thing. You can be the entrepreneur. You can be the person that has a nine to five and then an entrepreneur on the side and also likes to volunteer on the weekends. You can do all of that because everybody wants an encore life, as I like to say. That means they work somewhere for a number of years, have excited, and then do something that's meaningful. This Generation Z wants to do something that's meaningful. So let's make sure that we don't take these babies and say, 
no, I need you to go to school and major in, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer. If they want to major in art, let them major in art. We can teach them how to make money doing art. Why the Nikes have this different change about creativity. So it's important to understand that if you have a child or son and daughter that's going to college eventually that are creative, hone those creative skills. They can make money. Make sure they read that book, Design Your Life, and that they can get engaged. I think the whole audience that listens to this, get the book, Design Your Life. It is amazing. In it, there's actual things you need to do for yourself that will have you just thinking twice about your life. Awesome. Third thing is that overall, we need to be thinking about what the future looks like for us as far as individuals are concerned around retirement, around job changes, reskilling, skilling ourselves to be adaptable, flexible, and nimble in an ever-evolving world. What I don't want to see is people get to a certain age and all they can get is a medium wage job or a job because they now have not thought about how best to use their talents. Talent is abundance. Opportunity is not. So I want people to be able to take their talent and use it for the opportunities when they do arrive. Awesome. Thanks for sharing those. I appreciate that. So to the audience, you know, hopefully you, you guys were able to take in and absorb those three fa- those three those three points. But more importantly, Tierney, Dr. Tierney Bates, thank you for joining me and just helping us better understand how the university in higher ed is adjusting to the the future, digital transformation, the pandemic, and really helped us better understand how we can also support these students as well in these universities as they're matriculating into their careers. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and your time with us tonight. So for my audience, hope you enjoy this episode. Before we wrap up, Tierney, give us your social medias. How can we find you so we can follow you and just see some of the great work that you're doing? So all my social medias are tbates1914. That's tbates, T-B-A-T-E-S, 1914. So that's my Instagram. You can follow me at Tierney Bates on LinkedIn as well. My email is tbates1914 at gmail.com. That's tbates1914 at gmail.com. Again, reach out. I want to educate more people on higher education, the impact, you know, what people can learn from, understand that higher education is evolving, uh, that it's a key fabric of our country, though, based upon jobs, job creation, startups, intellectual property, intellectual discovery overall as a whole. And please reach out. I'm excited to do these talks and conversations. Because, you know, this is this is my passion. This is my it is something that I want to see more people get a degree, but I want people to get a degree and know what they want to do with that degree overall. And and, and again, have it because a lot of times jobs would just say you need a bachelor's degree. But I want you to be able to talk about your skill sets as well and what you bring to the table. So definitely reach out. Joe, thank you for having me this evening on this platform overall. Always humbled and be uh, happy to see you thriving and doing great things yourself. Go way back. Back to the days, of course of the Herb League, all that other great stuff. But yeah, I am always here as a resource, as a friend, and as someone who hopefully aspires uh, to be a college president and a chancellor one day. Hopefully I can listen back on this and then I'm doing some major innovation and changes to impact students in our power. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. And, and and obviously I'm definitely happy and excited to see your growth and proud of you, man, and, and seeing the things that you're doing. So I also want to give you your flowers as well and continue to keep doing what you're doing. If anything I can do to help, definitely let me know. And as we wrap up, thank you and thank the audience. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode.